the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It is the largest and fastest growing segment of the United States population, typically called the baby boomer generation. Those of us born between 1946 and 1964, comprising some 80 million Americans, and our numbers are being added to by 10,000 every day. Imagine that 10,000 Americans hit retirement age every single day. As we experience the grain of America, the big question is, how do we go about capturing this amazing block of individuals, not only in terms of harnessing their their collective talents and skills and ability and brain power and, and ministry abilities, but then, too, how can we most adequately minister to the needs of this growing sector of the population that, you know, as for all of us that are heading toward uh, the twilight years, you begin to think about the life that you've led, think about um, the shortness of the time that you have left, and questions with regard to the the significance of your life, and ultimately being heaven-bound. Insights on the issue of renewing ministry for and by seniors. We're joined tonight by Dr. Michael Parker. He is co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church. And uh, we appreciate so much uh, your time tonight, Dr. Parker, and being with us uh, to talk a bit about this important topic. Well, thank you. Your background includes that of adjunct associate professor of the Division of Geriatric Medicine and uh, Care <clears throat> pardon me, at the Center for Aging at the University of Alabama in Burning, uh, Birmingham. We have two centers for aging here in Alabama, one affiliated with our medical school, and then we have a center for mental health and aging at the, at the University of Alabama. So UAB is actually a separate university with a you know, very... Uh, with an outstanding uh, department of uh, division of geriatric medicine. So I have a joint appointment. This background, of course, uniquely qualifies you to speak to this topic of just how well churches are equipped in ministering to uh, not just the needs of the aging population, but then, as the book also suggests, how to harness this amazing subset of our culture. I think that's part of the problem, if you want to call it a problem. I think it's a, a wonderful gift from our Heavenly Father that he's given prolonged life, and yet it seems like we, we haven't cap, you know, captured that yet. And so what we want to do is, is think about ministry from seniors first, and then during that final season of life, ministry to them. If you think about one demographic, it um, if you make it to 65 on average, and these are just general averages, but if you make it to 65 and you're a woman, you might live another, typically you'll live another 19 years. And four to five of those years might be years of dependency where you need some help. Uh, If you're a man, on average, you live uh, not quite as long, another 15 years, and three of those years might be years of dependency. Um, You know, Billy Graham has just written a book called uh, Nearing Home, and in the opening introduction, he, he writes, All my life I was taught how to die as a Christian, but no one ever taught me how I ought to live in the years before I die. 
I wish they had because I'm an old man now and believe it. it believe me, it's not easy. And I think that part of the problem is that uh, we need to capture that vision that we need our seniors. We want to issue a call out there and say we need you. And, uh, and then there are very specific things over the 12 to 15 years that we've been doing research with congregations that can form the basis of a ministry. Um, but the, the basic idea is to have ministry from seniors. Um, it's interesting uh, how I became involved in, in geriatrics and gerontology. I actually was, was on active duty, and uh, I was uh, assigned to 7th Medical Command. I had great responsibilities. It was right in the middle of, uh, right in the beginning stages of Desert Storm, and my father passed away. And so I came back to the funeral, and when I flew back to 7th Medical Command, they had a memorial service for my father. And I realized that a lot of my brothers and sisters in uniform um, had similar issues, you know, aging parent issues from a distance. And so I um, uncovered this wonderful National Institute of Aging Postdoctoral Fellowship at Michigan. I applied and got accepted. And then I had to apply, and then the Lord had to do some great things, and I had to apply for a long-term civilian training from the Army Medical Department. And I got that. And then as things wind down in the military, you have to kind of iron out your assignments a year out. And uh, my colleagues in psychiatry said, Parker, you're going to do a child and family fellowship at Walter Reed. And I said, well, I'm not, I'm not going. <laughs> and uh, I want to go to Michigan. And, and, uh, and they you know, basically said, we're a young army, and, and you're going to have to do the fellowship at Walter Reed or you put your career in jeopardy. So somebody said I should go talk to my boss, and uh, this was a two-star general who had the weight of the world on him. And uh, we were responsible for medical care for Desert Storm. And uh, when I went in to see him, he mirrored the, the ideas of the you know, psychiatrist, my colleagues. And then he said, what are you going to do there? And I said, I'm going to you know, thank you for coming to my father's memorial service. And I told him what I just shared with your listeners, uh, that you know, I was interested in studying caregiving and particularly distant caregiving and his whole countenance changed and he said i just got a call from iowa from my family priest and he said your mother is leaving the gas on the stove what do you want to do and you see here you have uh, captured in his story what's going on almost across the country nationwide particularly for those who care for aging parents from a distance and he said, you know, he wanted to honor his country with his service and that he'd been training all of his life for, and yet he wanted to honor his mother. Um, and uh, it, it's, a, it's a challenging, uh, significant life event that most people at midlife face, and it's something we need to prepare for. And so we talk a little about that in the book. And um, so that's how I got involved. Uh, he said, tell those gentlemen that you are going to Michigan and the next day, you know, they congratulated me for sticking to my guns and, and off I went for a wonderful postdoc at Michigan which changed my life, you know, and my professional trajectory. So that's a quick intro into how I got into this. You know, the amazing thing is that we see so much focus these days on health care issues for seniors and uh, approaching that aspect of the physical needs of uh, the the grain segment of American population, and yet there's so little spoken of when it comes to meeting to uh, meeting the spiritual needs. And we're going to spend some time focusing on that when we come back after a brief timeout. Dr. Michael Parker is with us tonight, as you hear, a retired lieutenant colonel from the United States 
Army, serving now as Associate Professor at the School of Social Work and Mental Health and Aging, the University of Alabama, co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church, Renewing Ministry for and by Seniors. When we come back, how do you uniquely meet the spiritual needs of seniors? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Talking about the grain of America tonight, 80 million of us in that generation called the baby boomers, those born between 1946 and 1964, and as some 10,000 of us every single day reaches retirement age, it begs the question, how do we go about focusing on ministering to this unique and growing segment of the population, not only in terms of, of harnessing the talent, skills, and abilities that they have, uh, as con- active contributors to the church and ministry in the body of Christ. But then, too, what about ministering to their needs? There's lots of focus these days, of course, about health care and, and uh, care services for the elderly and the aging. As much as we talk about the physical needs, though, what about this aspect of meeting their unique spiritual needs. We're talking about that in this segment of the program with us, Dr. Michael Parker, co-author of a new book entitled A Vision for the Aging Church, Renewing Ministry for and by Seniors. Let's talk about this. You know, every church uh, pretty much anywhere in America has a youth ministry or a young singles group. Are we going to see the day, Dr. Parker, when many churches will also have an older adults ministry? Yes. In fact, uh, a lot of people kind of age out of youth ministry into senior ministry uh, from our experience. Uh, but the, the problem is that we're not addressing it systemically in our, in our seminaries, and we're not preparing people for, that, for the fact that people are living so long. And so that's kind of an area we've been working on. And if, if you look at something even um, as challenging as a disaster like Katrina or the recent F5 tornadoes that we had come through Tuscaloosa, seniors... Um, um, are hit more severely because of that. Uh, roughly 70% of the casualties from Katrina, 60 to 70% were seniors, and 80% of those dear people belong to congregations. And so one of the responsibilities the church has, I believe deacons and elders, is to make sure that we have kind of a, a safety net to older people prepare for the kind of disasters that might be characteristic of the geography where you are. Um, I lived in Monterey for a while, and I know some of the dangers you face out there. And really, I think you know, our deacons really need to take responsibility for making sure that our seniors are safe you know, in, in the event of a disaster. Uh, here in Tuscaloosa, where the F5 tornadoes hit, in one uh, church alone, we had four deaths um, related to the tornadoes, and they weren't directly related. They were indirectly related in the sense that they were affected by the consequences and the dislocation of the tornado, and they didn't adjust well. So that's just one small area that I think churches can step up, um, helping. You you were talking about some of the statistics. You know, some would argue that one in two over 80 will suffer from dementia, and roughly two-thirds of those will be Alzheimer's disease. And we're diagnosing that um, awful disease earlier and earlier now. What does someone do with that knowledge that, you know, they're basically going to lose their memory? And for a Christian, it's the loss of memory of God, their memories of God, their memories of Scripture. What assurances can we give them? And so the co-author in our book, uh, Jim Houston, who, by the way, was mentored by C.S. Lewis at Oxford, 
wonderful scholar, uh, the most joyful Christian at 88 that I know, and brilliant, has, you know, helped me write a chapter on kind of a, a theology of dementia. And he would say that we need to reassure anyone who's been diagnosed, and I'm cutting to the basic idea, is that they're remembered of God and they can trust him. And that's just one nuance, again, of how we might develop some ministry. Do we also need to see, you made reference to the issue of seminaries and schools that are preparing pastors and those for full-time ministry. Do we need to see the beginnings of development, Dr. Parker, of unique ministries? Because I think of the needs, as you say, of whether you're ministering to people who are Alzheimer's patients or their loved ones, uh, those that are just, even as the longevity tables do what they do, and we're seeing people living longer and longer. I mean, the growing number of centarians, for example, right. in America is, is significant. The needs that they have is not just like treating the older end of the demographic within our congregation. Well, pastor's in his 60s. Surely he can help meet the needs and, and pray for and care for somebody who's in their 70s or 80s. That may not be necessarily the case, especially as we see folks that are 90 and centarians. Absolutely. And, of course, these people are not able to travel. Um, they have mobility issues often and some frailness. And the church can be a part of helping people age successfully, by the way, to look at it on the, from a positive point of view. We can help people avoid disease and disability. We can help them kind of maximize their cognitive and physical fitness. We can help them be more actively engaged in ministry and in life. I think all our congregations can do a better job of asking our senior saints to pray for ministry and to engage in Holy Spirit-led ministry in the latter stages of life. Uh, you look at examples like Dr. Houston and Dr. Graham, who were, um, who their notion of retirement is not age-graded. You know, we we live in a very age-graded uh, society, and our seminaries are not immune from that, nor are our churches. We think we, we go to school, we go to work, and then we retire. But the truth is, we, if we're lifelong learners, we go to school our entire lives, uh, we really work our entire lives. And, and you know, so the, these are structures that are really lifelong. So we, we go to school, we work, and we um, um, need to take respites along the way. So those concepts really don't work and the church needs to challenge you know to provide kind of a countercultural perspective on the value of life in the final stages and be involved in helping develop uh, caregiver support programs uh, helping churches partner that are too small to manage these programs help us uh, you know do some late life planning end of life aging in place initiatives uh, helping people prepare for um, uh, caregiving and now we're talking about you know, middle-stage adults who are worried about their aging parents, and then challenging the, the elderly to engage with their young adult children about their, their long-term care plans. The long-term care industry in this country is broken, and it's in trouble. And, you know, when you look at the statistics that suggest we have more people over the age of 65 than we have 18 and younger, those uh, demographics are not going to change. And so it's kind of the elephant on the table, and we, we have to help the church embrace it. And the good news that these senior saints are around, these elders are long, around longer and can help us. So, you know, involving them and uh, 
small group life so that they're nurturing and loving younger people, um, uh, witnessing to the power of Christ in their lives, uh, and maybe setting up kind of a life review ministry so that you're capturing these stories of these wonderful senior saints and putting it to film. And there's a lot of work being done in that area. And we know from uh, our research that when someone completes a life review in the right way, it's an antidepressant. And so when somebody listens to your story and your story of faith, it really is uh, encouraging to that person and affirming. And uh, there are all kinds of lessons there that can be learned and applied by younger generations. Developing a vision for the aging church, renewing ministry for and by seniors. New book co-authored by our guest on this segment of Lifeline, Dr. Michael Parker. The new book, by the way, published by University Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com. And Dr. Parker, thanks so much for the time and the insights. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Hey, ask yourself the question, do you love your kids? Certainly. I think every parent says, I love my kids. They can be a little bit problematic sometimes. There are days when, you know, if we could turn back the clock, we might have thought <laughs> differently. But overall, sure, we love our kids. But how do we love our kids? And does it, in the end, make a difference? There's so much to parenting these days. And unfortunately, it's the one really big, important job in life where a lot like marriage, you don't get a handbook. There's no manual. There's no advanced pre-qualifications. Uh, you just kind of dive in and you go. And if you came, fortunately, from a good, strong family and uh, your parents did a pretty good job raising you, you can kind of model your parenting skills after them. And if you didn't, well, you think about what mom and dad did and then do the opposite, right? But in the end, some of the keys uh, to parenting can come down to not just that we love our children, but how we love our kids. That, coincidentally, is the title of a new book released by our guest on this segment of Lifeline, Mylan and Kay Yurkovich. And uh, welcome both of you to the program. Hi, Craig. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Great to be with you. I, I think of the, the five languages of love, and now you have brought out the five love styles. And let, let's spend a moment when we talk about this. I think, you know, at, at basic level, people think, well, of course I love my kids. And, and sometimes I've learned from people like James Dobson, I have to employ tough love. But what are these five different styles of loving? Well, essentially... Um, you end up seeing different people like the avoider parent who, male or female, is the emotionally detached parent. Uh, you have the pleaser who's the rescuing parent who wants everybody to be happy. You have what we call the vacillator parent who's dedicated but highly preoccupied and sometimes present, sometimes not, also a person who gets angry. A controller, the autocratic parent, and then the victim, the childlike parent. And all those styles, of course, there are good aspects, there are negative aspects, there are benefits, there are, I, mean, I, I suppose it's like anything, you know, the, the, the negatives weigh in with the positives. As we look at these different styles of parenting, give me some insight in terms of where do they come from? Is this something that, that's learned behavior? Do we model it after the way our parents loved us? What? Yes, we, we really do get our first lessons about love from our own families growing up. But we don't often stop to really ask ourselves, what exactly were those lessons and what was good about them and what, what would I like to change about them? And, you know, we were married 15 years and parented for 15 years without ever really looking back to answer 
or ask that question. So we, we come out of our homes with an, an imprint of intimacy or beliefs about relational styles, and each one of these that Mylan just mentioned um, have some specific issues that often we aren't aware of. Right, let's talk about some of the things that we're not aware of. Okay, well, for example, I was the avoider parent, and so I came from a home where um, my parents did a great job raising responsible, self-sufficient kids, that we performed well. Um, but where they, where they were weak, and I don't think they realized this, was they were weak in emotional connections. We were never asked about feelings as, as a kid and with my sisters. We were never comforted when we were emotionally distressed. We were sort of left to figure that out on our own. So I adopted those rules and parented my own kids in the same way, and I think most avoider parents, male or female, are, are going to be task-oriented and they're going to applaud mastery and independence. And sometimes I expected my kids to be further along than they were really developmentally ready to be. And, you know, when, when my kids were frustrated or, um, you know, upset, I really didn't have the skills to draw out their emotions or ask them what they were feeling because I didn't really know what I was feeling. Now, toward that end, I, I'm, I'm curious, Mylan, how did your parenting style uh, work in harmony or, or against? Was there a sense of balance between the two of you? Well, I like your optimistic start. <laughs> did they work in harmony? Well, actually, they didn't because as a pleaser parent, I wanted everybody to be happy. And I was a fear-based parent, which is what uh, pleasers are. And, you know, what happens is is that Pleaser parents often, even though they're fun and they create warm, nurturing environments, sometimes their highest value is safety, protection, and keeping everybody happy, and they, protect, they want to protect kids. And they can overly protect kids and ultimately uh, discourage exploration and so on and so forth. Does so, this also tend to be somebody that perhaps avoids conflict, wants to keep, you know, let's not ruffle the feathers, let's keep absolutely. everybody happy? Absolutely. So there can be some, so, some, some might regard this then, Mylon, as, as a, a lack of discipline at some levels. Well, that's perhaps true. Uh, pleaser parents are not as respected as other parents, um, often because they're pushovers, and they can, the kids can get by with stuff, and the parent doesn't want to create friction that causes the child to become angry at them because they're fear-based, and they like to have everybody in a, a happy place. And so they really can't offer... Um, what you said earlier in your introduction, uh, like James Dobson said, they have a hard time with this tough love concept, and people do need a good balance of tough and tender, or as it says in John, truth and grace. You know, there's so much work that needs to be done here because it, it occurs to me as we as we in life go about finding that perfect life partner, you know, we, we typically think about compatibility in terms of, you know, where do you like to vacation and, you know, how do you like to decorate the house and where do you want to live and how many kids would you like to, to have? We, we think about manners in which husband and wife will mesh together relationally, but I would suspect there are few that would sit down in advance of making a decision to get married and say, so tell me about your parenting style, you know? Well, that's true. And then if you get two parenting styles that are identical or are, are polar opposites, 
And as you've suggested by the title of the book, in, in five different styles of parenting, uh, it would almost seem as if if somebody uniquely, and I would suspect it might be a combination where some people are, have you know high tendencies toward one and a lower tendency toward another so that there's a number represented. But what happens, for example, Kay, when there's only two represented, the other three are missing? Does that really create havoc? Well, you know, these styles are a little different from the five love languages that you mentioned earlier because that's just a you know positive way that your spouse would like to sh- be shown love. These are more injuries. In other words, when each one of these styles represents some sort of inability to create emotional connection and to really create that balance Mylon was talking about between love and nurturing and discipline and boundaries. And so as the avoider, I was overly rigid and not able to emotionally connect, and Mylon was too free-spirited and, you know, unable to set those boundaries. But, um, you know, the vacillator parent is the third one, and, you know, their um, ideal is to have a family that is just stands out and is superior. And what the vacillator doesn't really realize is that they are very, very sensitive to rejection, and oftentimes they're very preoccupied with how all their relationships are going, whether that's their marriage or their friendships. And it, it takes a lot of headspace for them. And so many times when they're present with their child, they're really not all there. And so what the child feels with the vacillator is, I'm here, you're present with me, and then all of a sudden you go away, and I, even though you're present in the room, I, you're not here. Mm. And so the child feels a sense of... Um, Present, but the, but the parent exactly, is disengaged. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So all these, uh, uh, Craig, are in contrast to a secure attachment style you mentioned in your intro that some of us came from really good homes where we were known, seen, valued, and cared for. And we would describe that person as a person who had a secure parenting experience as a child. And they, they grow up and they naturally know how to create security in relationships. These others are what we call the insecure attachment styles. And so many books are about how to fix the kid. This is a book about how to work on us as parents, how one small change in you can make a big change in your kid. And that's so key because, again, given to the notion, as Kay mentioned, that we typically will model after the parenting style of our parents, good or bad, uh, if that's all we have to go upon, uh, my goodness, uh, that can be very problematic, especially, as you suggest, if the vast majority of us did not come from homes where mom and dad were perfect, then what do you do? And oftentimes, as you point out, we look at it as trying to fix things with the kids when oftentimes what's going on with the kids is a direct result from the parenting style. A look at how we love our kids. Kids, the five love styles of parenting, and how one small change in you can result in one big change in your kids. Mylon and Kay Yurkovich with us tonight. We'll be back with more insights as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. How we love our kids, the five love styles of parenting. And, and Richard reminds me, aren't you going to let listeners know, by the way, that Mylon is one of the co-hosts on New Life Live? And I thought, yeah, you know, that's that that's that over 40 thing again that I, I keep reading about. <laughs> Indeed, of course, the program with our good friend Steve Otterburn, weekday afternoons at 1 p.m. right here on KFAX. And and, and a, a million apologies, uh, Mylon, if I may. <laughs> oh, no, not necessarily. Hey, as we're talking about these styles here, I I like what you said just prior to the break, the notion that so often we approach this from the standpoint of trying to fix our kids, 
when if at first we would focus on, well, dare I dare say it, fix our parenting styles, sure. there might be the real key. Give us some insights from both of your perspectives, if you would, uh, as we kind of sit down and look at the list. We have to analyze, of course, uh, mom's parenting style, dad's parenting style, and then where do we go from there? Well, I think when Jesus spoke to the Pharisees in um, uh, the Gospels, uh, a he said to them, you know, the pupil cannot rise above the teacher, but when fully trained will be just like the teacher. Mm. And he was saying to that to them uh, after he called them blind guides. And he said, you know, the people of Israel can't see me because you can't see me. And he said, they're not going to get any higher or more elevated in their capacities than you. And I think it's a good passage to help us understand that how we're trained is about as far as we're going to go until we choose to get further training. So, again, as a pleaser, I was a fear-based parent. The vacillators are very shame-based parents, and they also fluctuate between being overly and uh, often rescuing and intrusive with their child to distant and angry, and so they, they vacillate back and forth. And the avoiders tend to be very much about task and mastery. And this can also, Craig, create a, a triangulation in the marriage where uh, the rescuing parent is, is more empathetic and has more shall we say, um, uh, empath, em, empathy for the child, and then the avoider's less em, you know, empathic, and then the parents are arguing about what should happen to the child without stopping and asking, are you balanced and am I balanced, <laughs> you know, in our assessments? And maybe, as you said earlier, we need to ask and balance each other out a little bit more. This really needs to be a team effort. In other words, this is not dad picking on mom or vice versa. Well, it sure happens a lot. <laughs> yeah, it does happen a lot. And I, I think an important question, we ask a great diagnostic question in our first book, which looks at these love styles in marriage. You know, do you have a memory of comfort from your own childhood where a parent saw that you were distressed and they noticed that you were emotionally upset about something and they sought you out and really listened to you and drew out your heart and, you know, offered comfort so you left that experience feeling relief. And surprisingly, about 80% of our audiences don't have one memory like that. So comfort is a big part of emotional connection, and avoiders don't know how to do it, and pleasers are afraid of negative feelings. They avoid them. You know, vacillators are so preoccupied that they often aren't able to give their kids comfort because they're trying to comfort themselves. And, and, and their world is either good or bad. Yeah. It's just all good or all bad. And then that last style that we haven't even talked about yet, you know, the people that come from really difficult homes that end up being controllers or victims, um, you know, they they just don't have any memories. In fact, the thing, they didn't get comfort. They actually got, their parents were stress makers instead of stress reducers. Um, so this whole idea of learning to emotionally connect and, and comfort each other um, was really transforming for us in our marriage, and it really helped us um, learn how to emotionally connect to our kids as well. And a lot of this, Kay, does it come down to learning how to bring about a balance of the good things from all five love styles? Is that what the goal is here in the end? I think the goal is to really look at your love style as an injury. In other words, as an avoider, I didn't get emotional connection in my family, and I was very unable to do it with my own kids. When I realized that, I had to take responsibility for that lack of training in my own home. And I had to learn to know what my feelings were. I had to learn to be able to articulate them. And the more comfortable I got in expressing emotions and accepting comfort, 
for myself, the more I was able to do it for my children. So each of these styles sort of is representative of an injury from your own family. And taking responsibility to really understand that and how it hampers your parenting and, and growing towards a more um, secure um, style where you really have the capacity to uh, connect and to relate um, on an emotional level and to listen well. Um, you know, so often we see our kids' behavior and we just react to the behavior without ever saying, why is this child behaving this way? What stresses them? We don't ask enough questions to even sometimes understand that. And, you know, this is such an important key because, Mylon, you touched on this earlier. I mean, certainly from an empowerment standpoint, and this is true in any relationship, the one that we have control over ultimately is ourselves. If we start working on ourselves, understanding our parenting style, seeing the benefits, uh, the disadvantages, and, and beginning to work on that, that certainly is the one key that we can control. But I suppose, too, there's also the dynamic here, as much as there is the parenting style, then there's just the kid's style, so to speak, the kid's personality. In the book, you talk about the free-spirited, the determined, the sensitive, the introverted, the premature. Then I guess there's sort of the meshing of your parenting style with the child's, uh, how would we say it, Mylon, parenting needs? Well, I think parenting needs is a very good term. I wished we would have used that in the book. <laughs> so, uh, yes, you're right. It's um, Every child's unique, and a lot of people, especially in evangelical Christianity, want to create cookie-cutter formulas for how to raise a kid. And some kids are what we call a highly sensitive child, and, and they they are perhaps sensitive to touch and light and sounds, and, and they're fussier and and yet if they're put into the same plan as as a child who's not that way, they, they really cave under the pressure, and their life is not a happy one. Uh, I think we can have the same standards but different approaches to each child. There needs to be a lot of flexibility then because your parenting style may not match their parenting needs, and every child within the family, three, four, five kids, whatever, may all indeed, as unique individuals, have different needs. Oh, absolutely. You know, that's so true. And, you know, I think anybody who's had more than one child realizes the, the truth of that, but in the same respect, we all do need to be really understood and loved and known, and, you know, we ask a question in our seminars, how many of you felt you had parents who deeply knew you, um, knew what made you tick, knew what your likes and dislikes were, um, knew what your struggles and stresses were, and again, there's a there's a just a minority of people who raise their hands and so every child really needs to be deeply known and valued and loved and um, to the degree that we receive that as kids you know then we know how to do it but if we didn't have parents who deeply knew us and we're, we're going to be lacking those skills so this is really a, a even book. awareness and awareness that's right um, I mean I parented for 15 years with no awareness that I was really parenting as an avoider and my last, our fourth child, um, got the best of us. And, mm -hmm. you know, you can see her ability to emotionally connect and be able to articulate feelings and um, listen well uh, is just at a higher level. And I would well. suspect, too, here in the end, it, you know, it takes time. It takes an investment because you're getting to not only know the parenting style of your spouse, but also the unique individual needs of your kids, and obviously that number and time increases exponentially based on the size of your family. Uh, but that said, I would imagine, Mylon, we shouldn't feel overwhelmed by this task. I think we need to feel like 
I can start any time to get better. Um, there's uh, a, a very prominent physician some years ago who said, you know, if we provide good enough parenting, um, it, it will be adequate. Uh, we're not trying to be the super parent, and we're not trying to be the worst one on the block either. We're trying to get better and improve. And this thing called sanctification that the Bible talks about, that we should be growing over the course of a lifetime, we ask many people in our audiences, how many of you ever felt as though your parents were growing over the course of your childhood and adolescence? And again, very few hands go up. You know, that I never saw growth. So it's a gradual thing, isn't it? You know, the concept of growth in the Bible, it's like seasons and time and fruit and fruit bearing. It's, it's, a, it's a function of time and growth. The book, again, is entitled How We Love Our Kids, The Five Love Styles of Parenting, One Small Change in You, One Big Change in Your Kids. The new book, by the way, published by Waterbrook, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Also more information on both the ministry of Mylan and Kay and information on the book on their website, howwelove.com. That's howwelove.com. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group. All rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.